Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. The temperature has changed. Now, I'm not talking about the physical temperature, unfortunately. It's still very cold. But what I'm talking about is the temperature in our culture. The temperature has changed. You know, it used to be back in the postmodern 90s that what you believed was what you believed and what I believed is what I believed and it didn't really matter what we believed and, you know, we could just agree to disagree. But as I said, over the past five years, the temperature has changed. So now you have the hard right and the hard left and the middle is now gone. And so now naming and shaming is very much back. So if you, if, someone, if you hold to a position that someone thinks is ridiculous, you can expect to be vilified. I wonder if you've experienced that in your life. I wonder if you've been subjected to the rage culture that is very much a part of our socially media-driven world. You know, I have a friend in our church who they were relieved from a leadership position that they held because when it was found out what they believed about marriage and family the, the committee decided that they needed to have someone who reflected more diversity, even though this person had been on this committee for many, many years and done an excellent job. So the temperature has changed. Respect and civility in the marketplace is gone, and it's been replaced by naming and shaming. So how are we to respond to this change in temperature? Do we just hide ourselves away and just go private with our faith? Do we rise up militantly and decide, I'm going to do some naming and shaming of my own? Well, in John chapter 7, we've been studying the gospel of John. So open your Bibles up to John chapter 7. The temperature has changed. John chapter 7 begins with the words, after this. That obviously points back to John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, we see some pretty amazing displays of Jesus' power. Jesus provides uh, food for over 5,000 people with just a small boy's lunch. He quite literally walks on water. And the popularity of Jesus reaches an all-time high as the people say, you are the prophet who is to come, and they want to make him king by force. But then the temperature changes. When Jesus outlines what it really means to follow him, by the end of John chapter 6, we read that everyone has departed except the 12. And from this point on in the narrative, Jesus is going to experience difficulty after difficulty after difficulty after difficulty, climaxing in John chapter 12 when the religious leaders hatch a plot with Judas in order to kill Jesus. And yet... If there is one word that could be used to describe Jesus, it's this word. What is it? Resilience. What is resilience? Resilience is the ability to stand up under pressure. And even though Jesus is under incredible pressure, he demonstrates resilience. He stands up under pressure. And if anything is needed by Christians... In the cultural moment in which we find ourselves, it's that very same thing. We need to be resilient. And so what we're going to be doing over the next two weeks as we study John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 is we're going to be doing a mini-series on resilience. This morning, I'm going to be talking about 
what is resilience? And then uh, next week, we're going to be looking at John chapter 8, and we're going to be talking about how you can demonstrate resilience in difficult conversations. Who here has had some difficult conversations with people? Maybe family members or friends or people who don't believe the same things that you believe. And so we're going to look at how we can be resilient in those difficult conversations. But this morning, we want to look at what is resilience. As I've said, resilience, the word resilience means the ability to stand under pressure. But in John chapter 7, I think we see Jesus demonstrating what I'm going to call gospel resilience. Now, in order to understand John chapter 7, you need to understand the setting in which all of the events of John chapter 7 take place. And the setting is given to us in verse 2. Look down in your Bibles. John says, Now the Jewish feast of booths was at hand. Now this Jewish feast of booths, or the Jewish feast of tabernacles, was a festival that was outlined in the law for the Jewish people to observe. And this Jewish feast, it occurred in October around the time of harvest, and it was a time of great joy. You see, for people in an agrarian culture, harvest time is a time of great joy. You've planted your seed, you've tended to your fields, and then harvest time is the time where you reap the reward. But this was also a time of great joy because in the Feast of Booze, which lasted for eight days, for seven of those days, what the people of God were commanded to do was they were to build these temporary dwellings, these booths, that were like tent-like structures with palm leaves, and they were to live in those booths outside of their house for like uh, seven days. So, so this is what one may have looked like. So you can imagine the excitement of the whole family as they're camping outside for, for seven days. And this was to demonstrate God's goodness to his people in the wilderness, how he had provided for his people and how they'd lived in tents for 40 years and yet God had provided for them manna and quail in the wilderness. But it was also a time of great joy because this was one of three feasts that every male above the age of 20 years in the region of Jerusalem was commanded to attend. And so the whole city of Jerusalem was abuzz with activity. Now, I don't know about for you, but for me, whenever I've been to a conference where there are thousands of Christians gathering, just by virtue of it being a big gathering of Christians, there is this electricity in the air. And this is what it would have been like in Jerusalem. It's harvest time. They're building these booths outside and their families are camping in them. And there's all these people and the city is full of activity. And yet, while there was a lot of joy in the city, all throughout John chapter 7, we'll see that there was growing opposition to Jesus. Look down in verse 1. Jesus suffered death threats. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. In John 5, Jesus had healed a blind man and had spoken about how God was his father and this had incited the Jews and they were seeking to kill him. So Jesus was suffering with death threats and so he stayed in Galilee and did not go down to Judea where Jerusalem was. But then in verse 3, his brothers came to him and they said, leave here and go to Judea. So he wants you to leave Galilee, and we want you to go to Judea to the festival 
that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Now, at first, it seems like Jesus' brothers are being quite genuine. Jesus, maybe they'd heard that everyone had sort of left him before, and they're sort of saying, Jesus, go to the festival and show your power, and then everyone will come back, and your movement will get back on track again. But even while it seems they are genuine, I don't think they are, because look at what they say in the next breath, verse 4. For no one works in secret if he seeks uh, to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, who here has little brothers, all right? Who's got brothers? You got brothers, you know? I think Jesus' brothers are goading him. They're saying, Jesus, you know, if you think you're this Messiah, well, why don't you go to the festival and prove it? Now, show your power. We're told by John in the next verse that even his brothers didn't believe in him. I think what they were hoping is that Jesus would go to the festival, he would try to do miracles, and he'd make a big fool of himself. And so what we see is not only was Jesus suffering from death threats, but Jesus was suffering from the disbelief of his family. You know, some of you know what this is like. It's when you came to Christ, your family rejected you. You know, I know what it's like. Some of my family, they don't believe what I believe. In fact, I've recently learned that they think that what I believe is completely ridiculous and what I'm doing as a living, as a pastor, is actually harmful harming society. But take heart, take heart, because as we're going to learn, if you go through the rest of the scripture, Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, eventually do believe in him and become leaders in the early church. God can turn people around. God can transform people. But still we see Jesus suffering with death threats and the disbelief of his family. Well, even though he doesn't go up at the, at the suggestion of his brothers, in verse 10, we read that he does go up privately. And when he gets there, he finds that there's a lot of confusion in the place. Verse 12, some say that he's a good man, and others say, no, he's leading the people astray. You know, there's a lot of confusion out there in our culture about Christianity and Christians. This past week at our real life group, as we were doing our soap study together, um, one of the members of our real life group uh, was speaking about some research that they got from the Christian schools um, conference recently from John Dixon, and it shows how divided people are over Christians. I've just got it right here, so just have a look at this. You see, these are the top 10 perceptions of Christians. 92% of Australians know at least one Christian, They're, and they uh, think that Christians are caring, loving, kind, honest, and faithful. That's pretty good, isn't it? And they also think that Christians are traditional, judgmental, old-fashioned, opinionated, and hypocritical. <laughs> you have quite, quite a diversity of opinion when it comes to what people think about Christians. Polar opposites, right? Polar opposites. Well, there was a lot of confusion about Jesus. Well, in verse 14, it's the middle of the feast. So remember, the feast ran for eight days, and it's the middle of the feast. And Jesus now begins to teach publicly, and the Jews marvel at his teaching, but all they want to do is debate. They want to debate his authority, and they say that he has a demon, and they want to debate where he comes from. Look down in verse 27. They say, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, 
No one will know where he comes from. There is so much misinformation that they have. They think that Jesus just comes from Nazareth where he grew up, but Jesus was originally born where? Bethlehem, as the Bible had predicted. Do you know one of the most frustrating things I find in the cultural moment in which we now live is one of the most frustrating things is all of the misinformation and misunderstanding there is about Jesus and the Christian faith out there. You know, when this whole Israel Falau thing blew up a couple months ago, I remember watching Martin Isles, who's the head of the Australian Christian Lobby, and Koshi on Sunrise. And Koshi turns to Martin Isles and he says, we all know that the Bible has been changed. And I thought to myself, Koshi, just a simple Google search would find that that is just completely errant. Secular scholars who study textual transmission would tell you that no, what we have today is a pretty good transmission of the scriptures to us. But there's just so much misinformation and people want to debate you. So Jesus had death threats. Jesus had the disbelief of his family. Jesus had debates with the crowds. But it gets even worse. In verses 32 to verse 36, they then, the Jewish leaders, they send officers to arrest Jesus and put him in prison. So can you see that while there was great joy at this festival, there is this growing opposition to Jesus, death threats, the disbelief of his family, debates with the crowds, and the leaders are wanting to arrest him and put him in prison. Yet it is right at this moment, on the very last day of the feast, that Jesus shows us the essence of what it means to demonstrate gospel resilience. But before I explain what that is, you really need to have a piece of cultural information to really understand verse 37 really well. Remember I said that um, the Feast of the Booths was, or Feast of Tabernacles, was where the Jews, it lasted for eight days, and for seven days they would live in these um, booths or lean tools made of palm branches, leaves, and tree limbs. And it was their way of remembering the 40 years that their ancestors had wandered in the wilderness and how God had provided for them manna and quail in the wilderness. But it wasn't just food that God provided for them in the wilderness. He also gave them water. When the people became thirsty and they had no water, they accused Moses of bringing them into the desert so that they would die of thirst. And so the Lord told Moses to take out the same staff that he had used to part the Red Sea and to hit this rock at Horeb. And when Moses hit the rock with the staff, water gushed out, clean, fresh, pure, more than enough for all the people. Over one million people got to drink from the rock. It was an amazing miracle. So God provided for them for their thirst in the wilderness. And so part of the Feast of Booze, as we learn from rabbinical literature, was this daily ritual where the high priest would lead a procession from the temple to the pool of Salome. And when they approached the pool, he would dip this golden urn into the water and he would take up the water 
from the pool of Salome, and the people would recite these words from Isaiah 12, verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then the people following the high priest carrying this golden urn filled with water would wave palm branches and sing psalms of joy. And then they would enter the temple through the water gate to the blasts of the priest's trumpet. Can you imagine it? The priests are blowing their trumpet. Here comes the high priest with his urn of water and he would circle the altar once and accompany the priests onto the platform and then he would pour out the water onto the altar. And this would happen for seven of those days. And on the seventh day, the priest would circle the altar seven times. But on the Day eight, the great day of the feast, the final day, it was a holy convocation. So they didn't perform that ritual. And it was on that day, the great day, verse 37, that Jesus stands up the day with no water. Rabbis would sit down, but Jesus stands up and he says to all the people, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Do you get the picture? This is the most public action of Jesus. Jesus is saying to all of Israel, I am that rock in the wilderness that was struck. I am the one who will provide living waters. I am the one who will provide the waters of salvation to you. Come to me and drink. You see, what is gospel resilience? Gospel resilience is this. It's the ability to publicly declare the gospel to an unbelieving world despite the opposition, despite the disbelief of his family, despite the debates of the crowd, despite the threat of imprisonment, Jesus stands up and he says, come to me. And what is needed in the church right now is Christians who will stand up And despite the disbelief of their family, despite the debates that are raging in our culture, despite even the legal implications, Christians who will stand up and say, come to Jesus. Come to him. Let all who are thirsty come to him and drink. You know, a couple months ago, we had our REACH conference and we had Pastor Chandran come and speak to us from Nepal. And I had him up on this stage. And I hope you were listening because he shared what it's like in Nepal and how the laws have changed. And if there's one word to describe the church in Nepal, it is the word resilient. They're willing to declare the gospel regardless of the cost. And is it any wonder that the gospel is going forth and churches are being planted And there is a revival happening in Nepal. And I think to myself, why is it happening in Nepal and it's not happening here? Why aren't we as resilient? Why aren't aren't I as resilient as someone like Pastor Chandran? And part of the issue is, is that for the past 1,700 years, the church in the West has lived within the comfort of Christendom. You might ask, what is Christendom? Well, let me give you a history lesson. It's way back in the fourth century, after three centuries of persecution, 
Emperor Constantine, he issued the Edict of Milan. The Edict of Milan made Christianity a legal religion in the Roman Empire. Up to that point, to be a Christian meant that you would get persecuted. But this legalized Christianity as a religion, which was great. But then over the next few centuries, Christianity and the Roman Empire became wedded together. So you had the Holy Roman Empire. And then as the Roman Empire spread out throughout Europe, also Christendom spread, this idea of a Christian kingdom. Now, I have a lot of problems with that theologically. I'm part of the free church. I'm not part of this idea of Christendom. But that's another topic to go into for another day. But what this meant is that as, as, the, as Christendom spread, it meant that the values and morals of those countries were in line with the values and morals of the Bible. So that even in Australia, our whole morals and our basis of law was like the Ten Commandments. And for 1,700 years, uh, we could have comfort in the fact that the community and society basically had the same morals and the same beliefs as us. But last century, after two great world wars and after the sexual revolution, Christendom has basically died. So that now the morals and beliefs of our culture and the morals and beliefs of the church are polar opposite. Here's some statistics for you. Look at this, look at this. This is a thing on belief blockers, issues that are most likely to prevent non-Christians who are open to change from exploring Christianity. What's the number one thing? Homosexuality. Homosexuality. The temperature has shifted now that it's not just that people will tolerate the Christian view, but now the reality is, is that the Christian view of sexuality is seen as repressive and evil and as hurtful to society. That's what, that's what many people in our culture believe. And you see, because we've been raised in this culture of Christendom, where we've never learned to flex our muscles, we've, we've atrophied. I don't know, you know, when, when um, astronauts go up into space, right? When they, when they go up into space, they have to work out and they have to do all these things because just being in space and not walking around, their muscles atrophy. And we have atrophied as a church and we haven't grown the necessary faith muscles to stand strong. Also for the last three decades, I believe it's because also for the last three decades, the predominant posture that the church has had in order to reach people has been the posture of relevance. Relevance is the idea that in order to make the church attractive to people, we need to change the forms of church. So in the 1980s, you had the great contemporary music movement where you got rid of, you know, um, hymns and organs and we had replaced it with guitars and we replaced it with praise songs. I'm happy about that, by the way, but that was a big movement in the 1980s. In the 1990s, you had the seeker movement which said we need to get rid of expository preaching and we need to preach more topical sermons so we can make the church more attractive so that people will come to church. The only problem now is, my friends is that it isn't just a question of form and relevance that will get people saved. The problem is now that our essential message is offensive to people. If you didn't see that in that Israel Folau post, if you haven't seen that, then, then you, you, you're, not, you're not awake. Wake up. 
Our essential message is now offensive to people. Even if we try to do it lovingly and whimsically, it will be offensive to people. And so my fear is, and I'm no prophet, but my fear is a contemporary church that's raised on relevance. It won't be too long before they're changing the message in order to try and win people pragmatically to Christ. But I think that what we need is we don't need more relevance. I think what we need is resilience. We need Christians who will stand up and say, come to Christ. Not come to my morality, but come and drink from Christ. Come to Christ. Come and, come and drink. Come to Him. Do you want to become one of those Christians? Who here wants to become one of those Christians who's resilient? Yeah? All right. Well, how do we become those type of Christians? Well, I want to give you four keys from John chapter 7. Four keys. Here's the first key to developing res resilience is we need to expect suffering. Expect suffering and opposition. Jesus says in response to his brothers, he says in verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus says you have the world and you have the kingdom of God. And the world, Jesus said, will hate me, and guess what? It will hate you. So we should expect opposition from the world. I mean, they don't share our viewpoint. They don't know King Jesus. And so they're not going to share our worldview. So we should expect opposition. Second key is we need to fear God and not man. You see, Jesus goes up to the feast, and these people are really confused over who he is. And yet in verse 13, it says, For fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. They were afraid of man rather than being afraid of God. We need Christians who have a big view of God and a small view of man. We need Christians who realize that because they're accepted and loved by Jesus, they can be rejected by the world. Now, I know this is difficult. I was in a conversation just recently with someone I love. And, they, and as we were talking about this issue of homosexuality, they mocked me, and they belittled me, and they said, you just believe that because you're like a religious person, and that's just the way that you've been grown up. And, and I looked like a fool in their eyes. But I would rather be a fool in their eyes and wise in the eyes of God. And hold to his truth. And also, I realized afterwards that it's okay. It's okay to be a fool in the eyes of the world, people. We don't have to be right because our righteousness doesn't come from being right. It comes from Jesus. So we don't have to be all defensive and all upset. We can just state the truth plainly. And as soon as I stated the truth out of my mouth... Homosexuality is a sin. It's not God's design for humanity. I knew what they were thinking. But we need to be bold enough. Bold enough and loving enough. I'm not saying to do it self-righteously, but loving enough to state the truth because we fear God. 
and we don't fear men. Thirdly, the third key is to see the real need. See the real need. The reason why I believe that Jesus stood up on that great day and he cried out publicly, if anyone thirst and come to me, is because he saw the real need of the people. While all this froth and bubble was going on, he saw these spiritually thirsty people. He saw what was really going on, and it broke his heart. And that's why he stood up and said, come to me, come to me, because he saw that they were spiritually thirsty and they needed him. You know, when you see a world that is gender confused, a world that wants to debate you, a world that is raging against God, what do you see? I hope that you see a world that is broken like Jesus did, a world that Jesus died for. This is the world that he died for as he looked out and saw the disbelief of the people, them debating against him and them wanting to arrest him. What he saw was spiritually thirsty people. And I'm hoping that that's what you see. Look and see the real need behind what people are doing. Jeremiah 2 verses 13, the Lord says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. People are looking for water, but they're building these broken cisterns. And in their brokenness, That is why they're going after all these other things. But we, we know the one who can give them real living water. You know, I was reading a book over my holidays about, um, uh, it was talking about um, Martin Luther. And we often honor Martin Luther because he rediscovered the great doctrine of justification by faith. But what this author said is, is that when Martin Luther went and preached to the Jewish people, Martin Luther, when he he got their rejection coming back, instead of doing what Paul does in Romans 9 at the rejection of his people, getting down and weeping over the rejection of his people and wishing that he was accursed so that they might be blessed, do you know what Martin Luther did? He started to publish some of the most racist racist and ugly anti-Semitic things ever written. See, I see Christians rising up in self-righteousness against an unbelieving world rather than getting down on our face before God and weeping over the state of this world. Let's weep. Let's, Let's rend the heavens. Let's ask God to come down. The world is always going to rage against God, and unless God, as he took mercy on us, takes mercy on them, then nothing's going to happen. Let's be a church that sees the real need, a church that's weeping, and then out of that brokenness, we can speak the truth out of a broken heart, a heart that's not self-righteous, a heart full of love for people. I love you, and that's why I'm telling you the truth. And it's always more palatable to hear the truth out of a heart that's broken rather than a heart of self-righteousness. So expect opposition. Fear God, not man. See the real need. And then finally, the fourth key 
to becoming a resilient Christian in a resilient church is we need to drink daily from the well of the Spirit. Jesus says in verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, what you're going to need in a world that opposes you is you're going to need a source of joy and peace in the midst of the opposition. And where will that come from? That will come from dwelling on the fact that Jesus is the rock, that he took the wrath of God, he took the blow for you, and then he's given you a river of living water so that you can have a source of joy and a source of peace in the midst of the darkness. You know, what did um, uh, Peter and John do when they had been beaten up for Christ? What did they do? They went away, what, did they, what does it say? They went away what? Rejoicing, rejoicing in the Lord. You see, we need this source of joy that comes from daily drinking at the well so that we'll have a river of life flowing out of us. Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as of yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. The gift of the Spirit sends us out on mission. So expect opposition, fear God, not man, see the real need, drink daily from the well of the Spirit if you want to be resilient. The temperature has changed, my friends. Relevance will not be enough. We need resilient Christians. Will you stand with me and pray?